Welcome to Oslo International Church's podcast, where we share weekly reflections from our community of faith. If you'd like to explore more of our resources or join us for a service, visit our website at oslointernational.church. And now, here's the message from our last Sunday service with Pastor Mike on Storenagel. There are the stories, there are the telling of the stories, and there are the stories that the tellings make possible. I want to say that again because this is so crucial. There are the stories, there are the tellings of the stories. And there are the stories that the tellings make possible. Several years ago, I had the privilege of spending time listening intently to the stories of some remarkable storytellers. Their skill had been honed by time and by a profound sense of local embodiment And they had also been honed by need. I knew that I was somehow entering into their story as I drove to their rural community, tucked in the middle of the lush vegetation of a mountain range that runs between the coast to the east and a plateau that stretches all the way to Argentina to the west. And there... And between those hills in the south of Brazil, there lived the stories and there lived the storytellers. And both, both the stories and the storytellers, they carried the marks left by slavery in Brazil's social, economical, and I would argue even geographical landscape. This was a community that had been formed by runaway slaves, disgruntled slaves, or maybe it would be better to say by people trying to not be slaves in a system that disallowed their existence as anything else than slaves. And now over a century later, the elders in that community are the children of that first generation. And I was a young social anthropologist, and I was there to hear their stories. Stories about abuse by the land and slave owners. Stories about the supernatural beings that inhabited the hills. Stories of family, stories of survival. And as I listened, the stories sort of rolled over the history and the geography of the place and surrounded me. I was obviously the outsider, a guest by their generosity. But what those stories did to me, though, it was less important than what those stories did to that community. The stories, they landed the past in the present and in a place, in location, and in doing that, they actively reinforced, created, identity, and belonging in that community. But in that moment in history, when I was there, 
the telling of the stories also did something else. It created the possibility of a future. See, new laws and new interpretations of laws in Brazilian's political bureaucracy, it had opened up a possibility for that community to claim their right over the lands that they had inhabited for over a century and to get legal protection. And those rights, they were connected to the community's identity as what is called a quilombo, which is a community formed by slaves who resisted slavery. Now that word, quilombo, that word was new for this community. But their story wasn't. So the storytellers, they weaved this new, new quilombo identity into their storytelling so that the telling of the stories was making new stories possible. You see, laws, laws also, and lawyers know this well, laws also are stories that can be told in ways that make certain stories possible and other stories impossible. There are the stories, there are the telling of the stories, and there are the stories that the telling makes possible. But we have been hearing another story, the story of Ruth. And today we arrive at the last chapter of the story of Ruth. And in this final chapter, Ruth goes silent. And it bothered me. It bothered me at first that Ruth goes silent. Because throughout the book, Ruth has done the hard work. Throughout the book, Ruth has been the driving force of change and compassion. And now she gets pushed to the background? For those of you who don't know or recall the story so far, let me quickly recap it, and those of you who have heard it repeatedly this past few weeks, bear with me, right? The story of Ruth tells the story of a man from the area of Bethlehem in Israel who emigrates in a time of famine. He leaves Israel to the country of Moab, which is a neighboring country, which was also a historical enemy of the people of Israel, but they moved there in this time of famine. He moves there with his wife, Naomi, and with his two sons. As they are there... Elimelech, who is this man, he dies, leaves Naomi alone, but her two sons marry local Moabite women. Now, that is a big no-no for Israelites to marry Moabite women, but they're there, they're living there, they marry. After a while, these two sons also die. Naomi is left alone in Moabite land with her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. Then she hears the famine is over in Bethlehem. There is again food, so she decides to return. She sets out on the road, Orp and Ruth with her. At some point, she stops and she says, you should not be coming with me. Stay here. There is no future for you in Israel. I cannot give you husbands. I cannot give you new, new sons. Uh, there's no future for you. Stay here in your country, in your homeland. Orpah 
says, yeah, that makes sense. She leaves. Ruth says, I will not leave. I will stay with you wherever you go. I will go wherever you sleep. I will sleep. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Let nothing but death separate us. Naomi gives, gives in, right? Caves in to Ruth's insistence and kindness and goes back with Ruth to Bethlehem, to Israel. When she arrives, people say, is this Naomi who left? And Naomi says, don't call me Naomi. The name means pleasant. Call me Mara. That name means bitter. Because I left full-handed, I come back empty. The Lord has taken everything from me. I have nothing left. But they're there, and Ruth decides to do something, which is to step up for Naomi and take care of her. So she goes out to the fields. It is the time of the harvest, and she goes to do what is called gleaning, which means going behind the harvesters after they collect the grain. Whatever's left behind, the poor, the widow, could go and pick that up so they had something to eat. Ruth, even though she is risking herself as a woman, as a foreigner, and moreover, as a Moabite, who were hated and despised people, the stereotypical other, she puts herself at risk to gather grain for herself and for Naomi. She finds herself in the land of a man named Boaz. Boaz is a near relative, and because of the specific laws of the time, that means that he had the possibility of redeeming, in legal terms, Naomi and Ruth by marrying Ruth. Marrying Ruth means that he could, have, he could claim the land that belonged to Elimelech back to Naomi, and any children that he had with Naomi would be considered of the line of Elimelech and so continue the family line. It's how the, what's called leveret marriage. So she recognizes Ruth, and then in chapter 3, uh, because things are taking time, nothing's happening, Ruth and Naomi take initiative. Ruth goes to Boaz and basically proposes to him, says, okay, can you like, marry me? Let's do this. And that's when we arrive at chapter 4. Boaz is obviously taken by Ruth. He says he will do everything in his power, and we come to chapter 4. So, you see, Ruth is at the front line all the time. So how come Ruth now goes silent? Ruth is, Ruth is a badass. She gets down on her knee, and she proposes to Boaz. But you don't do that, especially not if you're a Moabite woman. And now she goes, to the, she goes silent. But I chose to listen to the story. And as I listened to the story, I realized that she goes silent, not because Ruth is no longer important, but because the story of Ruth is about to change the story of those around her and about to change the story of Israel. Her story is about to enable new stories to be told. Ruth is like a holy stone that is thrown into the stale pond of Israel. And now comes the ripples. Now comes the ripples. Chapter 4 moves us into the power of how stories are told and what they make possible. And we see it happening already in the chapter itself. And I want to read it with you. Ruth chapter 4, I read it from the NIV. And this is how the story goes. Meanwhile... Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the, uh, as the garden redeemer he had mentioned came along. So there was a nearer uh, next of kin in line that had first right over the land and the widow. Came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the garden redeemer, 
Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to her relative, Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the garden redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself, I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the garden redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. These were the sons. I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today, you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people of the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a garden redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Solomon, Solomon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. This last chapter starts with Boaz telling a story. It's the story of Naomi, it's the story of the land, and it is the story of Ruth. It also is, he hopes, his own story. But Boaz, it seems, is also a cunning storyteller. He first tells the story of Naomi, and he braids it with the story of the land. For this unnamed garden redeemer, this next of kin listening in, this sounds like an opportunity, a story of possible enlargement of wealth. New land to be acquired. Boaz has more telling to do, though. 
into the story of the land comes the story of the foreigner, of the widow, of the Moabite woman. The narrative had actually dropped that othering term for a while now. Ruth the Moabite was strong in the beginning. And last chapter, we saw Ruth being Ruth. But now, Boaz, in his cunning, he brings it back. And the trap is set. This next of kin, he must now declare publicly in the presence of witnesses his intentions and his priorities. He had been willing to join a story of enlargement of wealth. Will he be willing to join a story of enlargement of kindness and inclusion? It's not just a trap, it's a dilemma. Because Ruth is a legal conundrum. It says in Deuteronomy 25, However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders at the town gate and say, My husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of this town shall summon him and talk to him. If he persists in saying, I do not want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, this is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. That man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. Now, though the narrative of Ruth provides an alternative reasoning for the whole sandal thing, it is highly unlikely that the strong reference and image as this would be lost to those ancient storytellers and listeners alike. They very likely would know this law just as well as they knew the laws calling out for the single-out exclusion of Moabites who were not to be included down to the 10th generation, and we heard about that in other Sundays. So for the next of kin, this garden redeemer man, to not marry Ruth is to disobey the law of leveret marriage, described here that we just read. But to marry her is to disobey the laws dictating the exclusion of Moabites. Laws, it seems, are stories that can be told in ways that make certain stories possible and other stories impossible. Yet the decision, the narrator lets us know, it is not really made on the basis of law or morality. It is made on the basis of greed. The wealthy man will not risk his estate or his inheritance for the sake of a widow and a foreigner. And the truth is, we are hardly surprised. We are hardly surprised because that is the nature of so many decisions considering the vulnerable in the world. Greed. But Boaz, Boaz chooses to tell a different story about Ruth and a different story about himself. Boaz chooses for an enlargement of kindness and an enlargement of belonging. There are the stories 
There are the tellings of the stories, and there are the stories that the telling makes possible. Boaz, Boaz now tells a story about Ruth that makes possible a story of redemption for her and for Naomi, and makes possible a story of hospitality and inclusion for Ruth, for himself, and for the whole people of Israel. And so more stories are told. The elders, they now poetically retell the story of their own people through the wombs of the matriarchs. Rachel, Leah, and Tamar. And now they make room for Ruth in the story. It is a remarkable retelling of the story because it lets go of past grievances and it allows for life now and for life in the future. The women of the town, they also, they tell a new story. A new story about Naomi. A new story about Naomi, the widow, who is now Naomi, the matriarch. And this story that they tell, maybe sing, it stands in contrast and challenge to Naomi's own story about herself when she arrived back in Bethlehem calling herself Mara, the bitter and emptied out widow afflicted by the unkindness of God. The story that the women now tell is also the story of Naomi. But it is a story of renewal. A story in which this Moabite daughter-in-law, who had all the right stereotypes for, ex for exclusion, receives the high honor in a patriarchal society of being called better than seven sons. Seven is the number of perfection in Jewish lore. There are the stories, there are the different ways in which they are told. And they are the visions and possibilities that they cast into the future. In their storytelling, the women of the town, the women of the town, they cast the future of hope for Naomi and for Ruth. And finally, though we sometimes fade it out, sort of bored by names we don't recognize and lines that we don't relate to. But finally, there is a grand finale. The genealogy, the genealogy in the last few verses, it also tells a story, and a powerful story at that. Because the genealogy is a telling of the story of Ruth that embeds her story into the story of Israel. It crystallizes her place in the story of a people that had been told and taught that there was no place in them for Ruth's prisms of color and identity. Yet there she is. There are the stories and there are the tellings of the stories. What does the telling of the story of Ruth do? I have mentioned before that there is discussion and disagreement in biblical scholarship about when Ruth, when the book of Ruth was written and with what purpose. And whenever it was written, there's a reasonable likelihood that it was written based on an earlier oral tradition, a story that was passed 
orally until it was written down. Now, one possibility is that it was written down around the time of the establishment of the monarchy. This is a much earlier date. And in that case, the reason for it being put pen to paper is quite obvious, right? And that is King David, who is the very archetypical embodiment of the Hebrew monarchy, King David has a Moabite grandmother. And this needed to be explained, and this needed to be justified. Genealogies, they tell stories. They tell stories. Another possibility is that it was written, or maybe just picked up again, in the post-exilic period. So after Israel had been conquered by Babylon and Assyria, taken to exile, they're back in the land, and in the nationalistic milieu of that return, which is seen very clearly in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, in that milieu that was filled, as it often is, with notions of ethnic cleansing, that there was a need for a counter-narrative that highlighted hesed, loving kindness, in the very character of God and in the story of the people that highlighted a God who had room for others, for the other, in God's people. Genealogies, they tell stories. And the telling of the stories in time and place make other stories possible. Laws also. And in both possible timelines of the writing of the book of Ruth, they Laws also are stories that can be told in ways that make certain stories possible and other stories impossible. You have heard, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, declared a many generations removed grandson of Ruth. And that's another story that the genealogy tells, doesn't it? You have heard that it was said, and he referred to old stories and old laws, but I say to you, and his telling of the story made other stories possible. You have heard that it was said, do not murder. I say we talk about hate and about how we move and act in anger. You have heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say we talk about how the degrading of others in our hearts is the root of us seeing them with the eyes of greed rather than humanity. You have heard that it was said, love your enemies or love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Like the story of Israelites and Moabites. But I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. What do we do when we find ourselves at the crossroads of how we tell and live our stories? Parker J. Palmer writes that violence is what happens when we don't know what else to do with our suffering. 
Violence is what happens when we don't know what else to do with our suffering. And any story lived in the world is a story that has suffering. Is there another way to tell our story? Is there another way to tell the story of God? Have courage, writes Maya Angelou. Have courage to trust love one more time and always one more time. Have courage to trust love one more time and always one more time. Hearing the stories of the wandering storyteller of Nazareth, the one called Jesus, the Christ, the one who said, you've heard it said, but I say to you, hearing his stories, some are offended. They are offended by his words, and they are offended by the stories that his words dare make possible. And so the storyteller is put on the cross. Hanged, hanged for daring to not only trust, but daring to embody love one more time and always one more time. And that's the twist in the story, isn't it? That neither the storyteller nor the telling of the story could be silenced. Because the new stories were already emerging, birthing from the very womb of God. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are writes John, one of those who listened and dared to believe that the story that Jesus told was also his, who accepted the invitation and dared to believe another story. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And so, here we are. Here we are today. Here we are in this place, gathered with these people. Here we are because we believe the story of God, the story of Ruth, and especially the story of the gospel, the story of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, is a story that makes possible new stories that could not otherwise be made possible, because we believe that the story of Jesus Christ of Nazareth makes our stories new and makes our stories possible of being stories of being chosen in love and of choosing love, that our story can be part of this counter-narrative to death in all of its tiny installments this counter-narrative that we call grace. And that's why we keep on telling the stories again and again. Today, I don't know if anybody was attentive enough to that, but today, if you've been here for a bit longer, we close a whole year in which we have been closely following the liturgical calendar of the church. We started last year with Advent, 
We said, we're going to now, this next year, we're going to pay a bit closer attention to the liturgical calendar of the church and, and make our preachings, our series, explore that. Today is the last Sunday of that cycle. Next Sunday is New Year in the liturgical calendar. And it is a cyclical calendar. And it is a calendar of stories. Jesus is born. Jesus is revealed to be God with us. Jesus dies and rises from the dead. The living Jesus lives in spirit and presence in his community, Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, Easter, Pentecost, Trinity, and again, and again, and again. And we tell these stories. We tell them again and again and again because we believe that the telling of these stories makes new stories possible in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Stories in which it is possible to choose love again one more time and always one more time again and to be chosen by love and grace one more time and always one more time again. Stories of reconciliation, Stories of inclusion and grace. Stories in which it makes sense to sit in a room like this with people so absurdly different than us. Stories of love. Stories with the creative power of the creator and of the storyteller of Nazareth and the storyteller of eternity. Jesus called Christ. That's God's story. What is our story? What is your story? How will the telling be hereafter? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you that you may know that he is gracious towards you. May the Lord turn his face towards your story. And may he bring you peace. So go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Serve each other, serve the world, and in so doing, serve the Lord. And let us do it joyfully. Do you want to stay connected with us? Check out our website at oslointernational.church to discover more about our community, access additional resources, and join us in our faith journey. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.